Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. There are uh, many people who talk about the cultural wars in the United States and who do various analyses of uh, opinion polls and uh, ethnographic uh, research. But Professor Oldmixon is the analyst who probably knows most and who has most rigorously studied the way in which um, these religious and sexual divisions um, are being played out in Congress in terms of the determination of actual voting behavior on the part of our representatives. She, has, she is the author in 2005 of a book called Uncompromising Positions, God, Sex, and the U.S. House of Representatives, which was uh, published by Georgetown University Press and uh, is really a quite um, rigorous uh, and exacting analysis of actually how this comes down, how, the, how, the, how this is mediated um, uh, in, in how representatives actually vote. It's been very, very well reviewed, as well as a whole series of other articles um, in this domain. Her new project is she's going to be looking at uh, American foreign policy in, in Israel. And uh, she has also, uh, I am pleased to announce, uh, just been uh, voted by uh, her department uh, for tenure and is uh, awaiting the, uh, the decision of her provost. Please join me in welcoming Elizabeth and Oldmixon. I am pleased to be here. This gives me an opportunity to talk about a, a puzzle that has, has occupied my mind for some time. Um, I'll say going forward that, you know, I wrote my remarks out just as, as my remarks, so I didn't, I didn't write a conference paper per se. Um, but if, if you want to you know, read this argument more formally, I can talk to you afterwards and give you citations to where you can sort of uh, get this argument in print. Um, I'll also say that I, I, I tried to delete some slides before we started so I could skip around a bit, and I can't, so you're, you're just going to have to bear with me as I go through some things until I get where I want to go on my PowerPoint slide. Um, my puzzle, okay, the puzzle that's occupied my time since uh, some, sometime in the mid-90s is, is this, uh, and that is how does Congress, this national deliberative institution, How's it, how, how does it address moral and cultural issues? And it, and it faces certain challenges as it tries to do that, and, and I'll discuss them later. Um, I will say most of the political science research uh, that addresses policymaking on the kinds of issues we're talking about here today happens at the state level uh, because states are traditionally the arbiter of public morals in our country based on the Tenth Amendment. Uh, but these issues are, are increasingly federalized, and so there's a larger role for the federal government to play here. Um, the work that's done at the state level tends to treat policymaking, tends to treat the legislative process uh, as in sort of a black box, all right? And, and we just sort of look at, at the, the, the factors within a state that might enhance or, or diminish the probability of cultural regulation. So I, was, I have been trying to understand legislator decision-making and, and get at this more closely. But it's very hard to study the effect of religion on, on legislator policymaking because, well, religion is a sort of a difficult concept to unpack and quantify. 
Uh, and it's also the case that when you ask legislators about the influence, the importance of religion in their lives, they sort of have an incentive to lie to you, right? Uh, even if it's off the record or sort of even if it's not for attribution. So uh, there are some, some difficulties to this, but uh, I've tried to get at this using both qualitative and quantitative techniques, uh, and I hope that they complement each other. And since we're talking about the effect of religion, I will start with the Gospel of Matthew. Okay? I will start with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you are the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden. Puritan leader John Winthrop preached to the early American settlers while they were on their way over here that they should, inspired by the Sermon on the Mount, model themselves as a city on a hill. And I think Winthrop's sermon demonstrates that well before the founding, uh, the rhetoric of this new American community was infused with religious themes and even a sense of providence, if you will. Um, and that carries through even, even until today, where I think there's a strong civil religion culture uh, in the United States. And we do tend to understand our history uh, and our institutions and our national symbols as having some kind of, of religious significance. This idea that we are a city on a hill uh, became a really popular metaphor for understanding this country. President Reagan used this idea all of the time. Um, and in his farewell address, he noted that Winthrop coined this phrase to describe the America that he imagined. And in that America, uh, there are a number of things that, that would that Winthrop would have expected. One is that religious values would be considered an unfailingly positive force. Uh, and the second expectation was that the United States would be, uh, in a way, a new Israel. Okay? We would have a covenant relationship with God that placed on us shared responsibilities uh, and shared admonitions. Okay? So we were, in a sense, uh, a holy place. Now, of course, social theorists in the last hundred years or so, uh, in spite of Winthrop's sentiment, expected the influence of religion in the face of modernism uh, and industrialization to sort of wither away. Um, and I think a casual look at, um, at our politics, at our presidential elections, would indicate that religion is still uh, very, very robust. And the thing about religion is, uh, it, in, in a political sense, it creates conflict, okay? It gives people a grievance, or, or at least there's the strong potential for that to happen. Because what does religion give you? It, uh, aside from the spiritual benefits, it gives you a set of values, okay? Truth, on which to model your lives. And once you have these values, um, you know, you can compare them to the way the world is. And to the extent that your values do not comport with the way the world is, to the extent that there's some incongruence, you are motivated to try to realize congruence, to try to realize your values uh, in a public sense. And when you do that, you're brought into the public realm in direct competition with people who don't share your values. And maybe it's even other religious people who don't especially share your values. So we can look back at the 20th century, not even the whole 20th century, just the last few decades, and see many instances of religious values animating political activism uh, based on this desire to, to realize the good life, a, a religiously informed vision of the good life. So you can look at the Roman Catholic Church uh, and their efforts on, I mean, everything, okay? 
uh, on the death penalty, on economic social justice, on abortion, on anti-nuclear proliferation. Um, black churches, black Protestant churches in this country have been enduring centers of social activism and they were joined by uh, liberal Protestants, uh, mainline Protestants, uh, and American Jews uh, in an effort to, to combat the status quo at the time of American apartheid. And of course religious conservatives, evangelicals, um, have been very active um, with regard to science curricula, uh, abortion, gay marriage, uh, but also international human rights. And interestingly enough, uh, Alan Hertzke just, just wrote a book about this, um, that, that international human rights is really one of those issues that, that transcends traditional cultural alignments where uh, evangelicals have really um, developed alliances with Roman Catholics and with Jews and Buddhists and, and, uh, and the like. So it's an area that doesn't seem to fit under the, the sort of the traditional culture war rubric, okay? Now, when individuals are brought into the political system or enter the political system to try to realize their values, uh, it, it becomes the job of political institutions to try to resolve these conflicts, to try to resolve these cultural conflicts. And I, you know, I use the phrase religious culture because I think for many, uh, conflict over issues such as abortion um, and gay marriage are about a religiously informed vision for many of who we are. Um, Aaron Valdovsky, uh, the political scientist, uh, the late political science, uh, characterized the function of culture as providing with us an providing for us an identity and telling us, prescribing what behaviors were consistent with that identity. And not only does culture tell us who we are, but it tells us who, who's not us, okay? It tells us who we aren't. So cultural arguments are uh, arguments uh, about how we should live with one another, okay? What moral order is the most appropriate, and then what behaviors are consistent with that moral order. The issues we're talking about today, I think, represent, and, and other scholars have made this argument as well, uh, a cultural conflict between traditionalism uh, and progressivism. So let me see if I can get this back here, okay? These arguments about how, who we are, uh, at least as it relates to these issues, these issues represent a, a larger conflict between traditionalism and progressivism. And so, you know, what do I mean by these two phrases? Well, um, as, as scholars have characterized them, progressivism uh, is a culture that finds moral authority in human reason. Okay? This culture embraces individual autonomy, autonomy directed at making private moral decisions uh, pertaining to family, pertaining to marriage, pertaining to sexuality. And religion may inform these decisions to the extent that individuals choose to take religion into consideration. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. And so uh, previously unconventional relationships are for progressives completely appropriate because they're of their own choosing. Uh, and that includes gay relationships. The job of government, then, is to protect that autonomy, you know, protect the autonomy of individuals to choose for themselves. I give you Barney Frank, okay? This excerpt from, from debate on the floor of the House, um, where Frank notes that government has an absolute overriding duty to enforce morality in interpersonal relations. We have a moral duty to protect innocent people from those who would impose on them. That is a very important moral duty. 
But is it the government's duty to say divorce is wrong and there are strong biblical arguments that say that if you are divorced, you should not remarry? Should the government then put obstacles in the way? Well, in Frank's opinion, no, absolutely not. Frank envisions a role for government as the protector of public morality, but the moral vision he promotes is one in which government carves out and defends individual autonomy. Uh, traditionalism, on the other hand, finds its moral authority in, uh, um, I'm sorry, in religious orthodoxy. Okay? So uh, traditionalists are, are then animated by the belief that appropriate social relationships are defined in terms of Judeo-Christian values. So decisions pertaining to family, to marriage, to sexuality should be made in that context. Moreover, public policy should be informed by those values. And government then should, should promote social relationships, the kinds of social relationships that those values ordain. And so, of course, I, I give you Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan famously made these remarks when he took the podium of the Republican Presidential Convention in 1992, uh, where he noted that this election is about more than who gets what. Okay, it's more, it, it's, it's not about economic alignments, okay? It's not about, as, as Harold, the late Harold Laswell said, who gets what, when, and how. It's not about money. Okay? It's about who we are. Uh, it is about who we are. It is about what we believe. It is about what we stand for as Americans. There is a religious war going on in this country uh, for the soul of America. It is a cultural war. And, of course, uh, Buchanan went on to characterize our choice in 92 as between uh, President George H.W. Bush, quote, uh, a champion of Judeo-Christian values, and th then Governor Bill Clinton, a champion of, quote, radical feminism, abortion on demand, homosexual rights, uh, discrimination against religious schools, and women in combat. Okay? Um, now, what I'd like to do for the remainder of the talk, um, you know, picking up on Roger's comments, um, the p I always have trouble with the word politicization. Uh, but the bringing of, of, of sexual politics uh, in, into the public arena, if you will, that'll be how I say it. Um, I think, to a certain extent, these sort of identity politics issues have been, have been driven by the reemergence of uh, evangelicals into political life in our country. So I want to talk a little bit about that um, and then discuss legislator decision-making on these issues. Uh, so I'm going to skip ahead, and uh, I can come back to any of these if you want. Uh, that's public opinion data on abortion, gay issues, come back to that too. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, okay, so let's talk about religious groups. Um, and let me skip ahead in my notes. Okay. Um, sure, where do you want me to go back to? Okay. Um, now, this is incidences of abortion using both uh, using data from the Allen Guttmacher Institute uh, and the CDC. Okay. Um, and so the incidence of abortion uh, climbed quite dramatically after Roe uh, was level for some years, uh, and since since the 90s has started to go down. Okay. Um, and and uh, AGI reports more more abortions than CDC, although the general pattern is still the same. Um, that's the incidence of abortion in in the U.S. as compared to California. 
Um, and, and the drop in California is more precipitous than, than in the United States, going back only to 1991, though. Um, do, do, should I talk about the public opinion data, or should I, should I come back to that? Sure. Um, well, I'll just say this. Um, I'll. Okay. Uh, one of the difficulties that we face, um, or that religious groups face, when they are trying to to bring up legislation that involves moral control, um, is that that these are really contested values. Okay. Uh, so this is sort of telegraphing to the end uh, a little bit. Um, all law represents our social priorities, if you will, what we believe to be right and wrong. And we could all probably agree that uh, murder is wrong and it should be prohibited by law. And, um, you know, rape and theft, these are wrong. I don't think that any such consensus exists when we're talking about abortion. Um, and, and so whoever wins, okay, whoever is successful in the legislative process, and I don't think traditionalists or uh, progressives either are completely successful. Both are very, very unsatisfied with how they've done in the context of policymaking. Um, whoever wins, one side will be trying to foist its values on another. And so if we look at public opinion on abortion, um, you know, about half of us are largely pro-life, which is to say we either reject abortion across the board uh, or reject abortion in most instances. Uh, and about half of us are largely pro-choice, okay? Um, only a very small minority of us are always pro-choice, okay? So believe that under any circumstances, a woman should have the right to choose an abortion. Um, but, but many of us are sort of pro-choice mostly, okay? Um, and the trend is in all religious communities except American Jews, going from 1992 to 2004, the trend is, is, is to become increasingly pro-life, interestingly. Now, if you look at public opinion on gay issues, uh, you find... Uh, a very different pattern, okay? Um, so, um, this is, you know, response to percent agreeing that homosexuals should have the same rights as other Americans. Um, now, marriage is different, okay? People don't necessarily support gay marriage, uh, but when you, when you get outside the realm of marriage, uh, Religious groups, increasingly, you know, going from 92 to 2004, are, are more comfortable with this idea. I always think about my mom, you know, when I talk about these data. My mom is a, sort of a pre-Vatican II Catholic, and, and um, you know, my dad, my late father as well, sort of would have loved the Latin Mass, but, you know, they liked Will and Grace. Um, and we had gay friends growing up, and, and so, you know, marriage was different. It was very different. Um, but, you know, employment protections didn't bother them at all, okay? So, you know, on the issue of abortion, traditionalists seem to be gaining ground. On the issue of, of gay rights, uh, I think progressives are increasingly gaining ground. Um, let me talk a little bit about, about the reemergence of religious conservatives, if you will, and their response to this, because religious conservatives were... Sorry, we'll go back. This is more trouble than it's worth. Um, religious conservatives were, were very, very, and I'm talking about evangelical Protestants, okay, um, were very, very active in politics in the early 20th century, uh, in the suffrage movement, um, in currency reform. Uh, you know, they, they, were, they were a part of the political process. But by the 1930s, um, 
Their level of success engaging the political system as exemplified by the outcome of the Scopes trial um, and, even, and even the success-ish of prohibition um, suggested that uh, the political system was failing them um, and that maybe they should concentrate. On, there was some retrenchment, okay, some, some, some removal from the political process of evangelicals in an organized way, um, having been failed by the political system. And, and this was uh, consistent with or, or complemented the views of, of some evangelicals that really they shouldn't be focusing on this world, they should be focusing on saving souls, theirs, and others. Um, but by the 1970s, uh, evangelicals are reemerging, um, and it was, as I say, very unexpected. Uh, Ken Wald notes in his 1987 books that of all the shifts and surprises in contemporary political life, perhaps none was so wholly unexpected as the resurgence of evangelicals in the 1970s. Now, it's worth asking why, okay? Why? Uh, by the 1980s, do we have the situation where you have these two cultures making demands upon the political system? One group demanding a good recognition. Okay, uh, you have feminists uh, trying to secure uh, abortion rights uh, or reproductive rights more generally. You have gays and lesbians uh, trying to secure recognition for their relationships. So you have this one group seeking a good, seeking legitimacy from the state. You have another group that perceives that good to be immoral. Okay, um, and they engage the political process and are equally assertive in their efforts to to have government uh, legitimate their values, or I should say, continue to legitimate their values. How did that happen? Well, uh, political scientists tend to do, to describe that with reference to status and concerns for status, and and I'll make a distinction between objective and subjective social status. Uh, by the 1970s, the socioeconomic status of evangelicals and Catholics as well has, has increased dramatically from the last few decades, and they are almost on a par with their mainline peers. And so increasingly, they have the resources that we associate with effective political participation. Okay, they have money, they have organization, uh, and they have leadership. So they have tools, okay? Um, but subjectively they feel perhaps that their way of life is being threatened, you know, that, that its hold on our cultural fabric is not as tight as it used to be. Why would they think that? Well, they look around, uh, they see the Roe decision, um, and that was 25 years ago, and that was especially potent. Uh, they see the, equal the move for the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, they see the Stonewall riots. They see riots on college campuses uh, and the development of the gay rights movement. Um, and that is credited by many with with bringing evangelicals back into politics. This was seen as a, as a direct assault on traditional family relationships. Now, um, evangelicals weren't the first to respond to abortion, okay? Uh, Catholics were, and the Catholic Church was unequivocal in its opposition to abortion, you know, well before the Roe decision, although my sense is activism on that issue happened at the elite level. Okay, so state legislatures were lobbied, um, but there wasn't necessarily until the 1970s uh, an effort among Catholics, among the bishops, to try to mobilize uh, the, the faithful um, on this issue. I, I will say about Catholics that um, on that issue more specifically, uh, I need to talk about dates, so I sort of need to cheat and, and look at my notes. Um, 
that in 1973, uh, the bishops agreed that the church should hold pro-life educational activities uh, and provide support for national right to life. Not only that, but in 1975, uh, the bishops called for pro-life activism in every single congressional district. Now, you know, gay marriage wasn't sort of on the horizon yet. They weren't really mobilizing Catholics on that issue, although um, they are now. You know, I'm from Massachusetts. I don't, I don't live in Massachusetts, but for some reason I always still read the Boston Globe every day. You just sort of can't help it. You're connected where your roots are. And, um, and, and the bishops have, you know, made concerted efforts. Uh, Bishop O'Malley, uh, or Cardinal O'Malley, uh, has made efforts to mobilize Catholics on that issue. And look, President Bush has made efforts to mobilize Catholics on that issue. You may sort of cast your mind back to the 2004 election and uh, President Bush met with Vatican officials and is reported to have tried to get the Vatican to compel bishops to mobilize Catholics to President Bush on the basis of moral uh, concerns. Later that summer, President Bush spoke uh, at, uh, at, a, at a Knights of Columbus convention, which is the largest lay Catholic organization in the world. Um, and told them that they had an ally in the White House on moral issues. Okay? So the effort to mobilize Catholics by President Bush wasn't based on the minimum wage uh, or migration concerns. Uh, it was based on these moral um, and cultural issues. Now, here, here is the difficulty for Congress, if I may. You have these two groups. Uh, with, mm, you know, not completely incommensurable, but uh, incompatible visions, incompatible worldviews. Um, and, and both want Congress to legitimate their worldview, to put into place public policy that is favorable to them. Now, what is Congress to do? Um, I'll tell you that public policy scholars will argue there are certain aspects of these policies, which they call morality policy, although, of course, all policy has moral implications, um, that comp complicate them. One is that they are, going back to this, the dilemma for Congress is, is uh, on the one hand, that these are easy issues, as Carmines and Stimson's, Stimson have argued. And by easy, I mean it is very, very easy for or the electorate to develop gut-level responses to these issues without much cognitive difficulty. Constituents may or may not know what CAFE standards are, but they do know what abortion is. And it may be an issue that involves moral complexity, but it's not very difficult for people to, to develop their own opinions, which means it's not that difficult for them to communicate those opinions to their elected officials. Uh, so they are easy, um, and they are perceived to be very polarized, as I said. Okay, so this is, this is, and it's not as if policymakers are disagreeing about instrumentalities. You know, it's not as if they all agree on the same policy goal and it's just a matter of how to get there. You know, and some have argued that, that race issues in this country have become sort of an instrumental debate. I mean, everybody agrees in racial equality. I, I may support affirmative action and you may not, but we're, we're all sort of going in the same place. Okay? Um, but this, this probably isn't an, even an instrumental conflict. Um, I suppose you could frame it in that way. Uh, but this is a disagreement about ends. It's about who we are. And so to the extent that the public is divided, um, develops opinions and becomes divided, legislators are going to become divided as well. Um, and it, it, it may cause for a real absolutist, non-negotiable framing. 
The problem for Congress is, and I don't think that's inevitable, but it can lead to that, sort of the sense that if you disagree with me, you hate women. Well, no, if you disagree with me, you hate God. Okay, it's sort of hard to, to get in the middle on that after you've sort of called each other very, very bad names. Um, but uh, you, Congress is, is an institution that is structured to seek compromise. That's how it's built, okay? It is built for pluralities, you know, it's very Madisonian, for groups to come together to deliberate with, with one another, and it's not strictly majoritarian, okay? It's, it, it sometimes takes more than 51% to win, and that's where compromise comes into play. Um, so this, you know, to the extent that these issues become absolutist, to the extent that they become non-negotiable, they really challenge uh, traditional mechanisms of, of the legislative process, if you will. Now, I've wanted to get a sense of whether or not legislators really view these issues as different um, in the same way that policy specialists do. And if so, I've tried to get a sense of what, what impacts their decision making. When congressional scholars have tried to study these issues, um, or, or any issues, I should say. I take that back. Okay? We, we look to a few usual suspects. Okay? So congressional scholars make the argument that, you know, that, that much behavior, and not just legislative behavior on roll call voting, but, but the organization of the chamber and career goals can be understood in terms of partisanship because partisanship uh, captures differences in our values and our preferences and our priorities. Okay? So we tend to think partisanship impacts voting decisions, and that's sort of intuitive and not especially controversial. Um, we tend to look to constituency preferences, okay? We, we borrow a lot, we steal wildly from economics and political science. Um, and so the choice theoretic approaches to, to studying legislative politics argue that at a basic level, all legislators want is to keep their jobs. And policy's nice, okay? But, but mostly they want to keep their jobs. Um, and we don't have a parliamentary system, so there are very few costs for legislators to defect and, and go against their party if their constituents want them to do so. Um, so we look to constituency preferences as, as probably taking precedence over party when push comes to shove. Because your party can't keep you off the ballot, but your constituents can, can vote you out of office. Okay? Um, I, I think ambition is, is, is related to those concepts. It's related to the sense that le legislators want to keep their jobs. And I'll add to this. Um, I think Barry Burden makes this argument in his book, The Personal Roots of Representation, which came out just this past summer. Uh, it's a Princeton University Press book. Um, and Burden makes the argument that legislators bring their own values to bear on the legislative process. Okay? So they don't just do what party leaders tell them. Um, they don't just do what their constituents tell them. Uh, but they have their own values, experiences, and interests. And look, for the most part, we have no idea what happens in Congress. On a day-to-day -day basis, we don't know what's going on there. You know? um, when I was a graduate student, my parents retired. And so I was telling people at dinner last night, so they were um, you know, elderly, and they would get up really, really early and, and put on C-SPAN and, and call me you know, at 7 o'clock in the morning to talk about what Congress was debating. You know, and I was a graduate student. I was 26. And so I could only get them to stop calling me by telling them that I had insomnia and was being treated by a physician and it became a medical issue. Uh, they didn't think I was so immoral and so bad for being asleep at, you know, 7, seven o'clock in the morning, uh, if you will. But with the exception of my parents, okay, 
Most of us don't know what Congress does on a day-to-day -day basis. People who study Congress don't necessarily know what's on the floor on a day-to-day -day basis. And so, you know, it's, it's different when Congress is voting on Iraq or abortion. Um, but for the most part, legislators can be politicos. They can be free agents. They can, they can do what they want. Now, religion tends not to be one of the usual suspects, okay? Um, there are very few legislative scholars who, who pay attention to religion. Um, the religionists in my field tend to study political behavior. Um, and Ken Wald makes an argument. Ken Wald and Clyde Wilcox in the anniversary edition of the American Political Science Review that, well, that's because academics are heathens, okay? Um, and so you don't pay attention to religion. Um, and it's more complex than that. But I would argue, or, or I was trying to investigate the possibility that religion can be brought into the legislative arena in a number of different ways. And, and through these mechanisms, okay? Legislators, or, or I should say religion can be brought into the legislative process uh, because it, it can be one of those personal traits that Burden talks about, okay? To the extent that religion informs one's values, well, when policy comes up that implicates those values, we should absolutely expect that legislators, when they can, to bring those values to bear, okay? To, to, to allow that to influence their voting. Um, and and to the extent that constituent preferences are shaped by religion, to the extent that religion informs and mobilizes constituents and that constituents then apply pressure to elites, um, again, we should expect legislators to be paying attention to religion coming from outside, so the, sort of the exogenous aspect of religion as opposed to the endogenous aspect of religion that is their own personal preference. Now, to investigate this possibility, uh, as I say, I did elite interviews with legislators and their staff, um, and I tried to, uh, using a statistical technique, uh, I tried to measure the impact of religion, taking into consideration the usual suspects of party and ideology and, and a number of other district-level techniques. Um, and, and I think what I'll do is walk through some of my, the results from my interview data. Um, I can't remember what time I started. What time did I start? Okay, so good. I have plenty of time. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about um, my statistical results. I, I think they're largely complementary. Um, in talking to legislators and their staffs about this issue, uh, and, I, and I talked to the 30 to 40 legislators and staffs, and it, it cross-cut party lines, um, Doug Koopman makes this very good point that, that you know, legislators are very, very hesitant to meet with academics because they assume that academics are uh, Democrats and therefore not sympathetic to them at all. Um, and candidly, you know, academics didn't, didn't study Republicans for a long time because they, the, they were the minority party. They didn't matter. Um, so when academics want to study them post-94, you know, no one, you know, no one pays attention. Uh, or, or I should say legis legislators don't pay attention to academics. But I had the, for the, the fortune, the fortunate experience of interning for... Um, Joe Scarborough, you know, of, of Morning Joe fame or Scarborough Country fame on MSNBC. So I would call offices and they'd see the call was coming from a Republican and so that gave me a lot of street cred. Um, but then, you know, I also worked as a congressional fellow for Mike Capuano, who is a very, very liberal Democrat from Massachusetts. I mean, this is Tip O'Neill's seat. And so, you know, I would call Democratic offices and, and, and that got me a lot of access. So I was trying to pass, if you will. Um, what I found talking to these legislators 
Uh, you know, I feel like the best way to present interview data is to sort of talk about it and, and show you what they say uh, or representations uh, of what they say. Uh, and so what I find is that the distinction that policy specialists make is, you know, they may, you know, they may not use the same language, but it is resonant with legislators, okay? It's not just that Ted Lowy thinks that moral issues are different, but legislators perceive them as different as well. Uh, one le legislator, you know, I don't, he... he he wasn't a trained political scientist, but he went so far as to say that these issues, quote, touch on people's approach to the way that they wish to live their lives and the way they wish other people should be forced to live their lives, okay? Um, and so as MC is my shorthand for member of Congress, okay? So, so this particular Republican member of Congress notes that these issues are different um, because passions run deeper and constituents have opinions. Constituents may not have opinions when we're talking about tax policy or energy policy, but there's a lot of complexities there, sort of sick, parentheses, SIC. Um, but when you're looking at the abortion question, if you're looking at something as heartfelt as gay issues, they understand them, they believe deeply, um, and they absolutely express that. And not only are these issues different in the sense that individuals are very passionate, um, but there is something very polarizing about these issues. Um, when we're talking this uh, legislative council, so it's a very high-ranking staffer in an office, when we're talking about something like abortion, which is kind of a banner marquee moral issue here, uh, there isn't much room in the middle. You're either fiercely opposed to it uh, or fiercely in favor of women's right to choose, um, and, you know, to be in the middle is to, to get run over. Now, I don't know that that accurately represents the opinions of the American public, okay? I think it absolutely represents the opinions of many elites, but I, I think the public, uh, sort of, you know, the public is much more nuanced. You know, I showed you the public opinion data with 50% pro-life and 50% pro-choice, but it's actually much more complicated than that. It's, you know, there's some circumstances where abortion's okay, and then there are other circumstances where it's abortion's okay. So, so for voters, this is very nuanced. For policymakers, not so much, okay? Uh, it's very partisan and, and very polarizing. So, so these issues aren't different for legislators. And, and the polarization that, that this staffer mentions, uh, I think, is overlaid by partisan polarization. You know, people don't pick their political parties at random. These are self-selecting. Um, and as some of Jeff Lehman's work uh, at the University of Maryland has pointed out, he's, he's studied uh, political elites, more specifically convention delegates. Uh, and what he has found is that increasingly, uh, Republican convention delegates uh, come from real traditionalist denominations, where Democratic convention delegates come from, you know, they're either secular or they come from more progressive denominations. And, and for the largest denominations, uh, he makes a distinction between, say, for example, high salience Catholics and low salience Catholics. Okay, so nominal Catholics who, you know, sort of may say they're Catholic and were raised Catholic, but they don't go to church. Um, and those Catholics for whom religion is a very, very important part of their lives. And what he finds is that uh, Catholics are split. Um, and, you know, the, the Catholics that are joining the Republican Party as convention delegates are traditionalist Catholics. Um, and the Catholics that are joining the Democratic Party as elites are fairly secular Catholics or nominal Catholics, if you will. Religion is just not a, an especially salient uh, part of their life. So, you know, this... 
the, the political parties are sorting themselves out on the basis of these cultural issues uh, in, in electoral politics, and, and I think that sort of bleeds into congressional politics, if you will. Okay. Now, Congress fundamentally um, has to make laws, right? Um, and so they have to find a way to compromise on these issues that are seemingly uncompromisable. Um, it's the job of leaders to, to build a legislative agenda on which their partisans can run for re-election two years from now. Okay? So leaders have got to find a way to manage the sort of the cultural and partisan differences between traditionalists and progressives. They have to find a way to make policy, if you will. Um, and so the way they have sort of compromised, the way they have made policy has, has been to focus on, on, on incrementalism, if you will. Um, and, and to focus on the appropriations process more specifically. Now I'll say, to the extent that compromise is taking place in Congress, um, one doesn't compromise on these issues by convincing someone, well, that I'm right and you're wrong, so you should sort of go along with what I want. To the extent that compromise is taking place, um, legislators are lobbying each other on the basis of their core values. Okay, so if I'm a legislator and I want to negotiate with Roger and we're sort of on different sides of this issue, I would negotiate with Roger on the basis of Roger's core values. I wouldn't try to convince Roger that he's wrong. And, and this happens in, in a number of different areas. So uh, this legislator, and I'll actually say who she is because she's deceased now, uh, the late Tilly Fowler noted that you could work with people, okay, really pro-life legislators on issues of, say, family planning um, by making the argument that spending money on contraception, both internationally and domestically, is in fact uh, a way to limit the number of abortions. Um, by the same token, uh, you might be able to argue with a pro choice legislator, that it's perfectly fine for them to be pro-choice. And, you know, I, I uh, pretending I'm a legislator, uh, you know, wouldn't disagree with you. And, and you can have whatever opinion you want about that. But again, when we're talking about money, um, let's make a distinction between your personal views. Okay, so maybe as a personal decision as to whether to have a child or not, you know, that, that can be up to whomever. But certainly, this isn't a procedure that the people in, in my district or that the American people more generally should have to pay for, okay? should have to use their tax dollars to support. Now, the truth is, um, Congress has been trying to deal with abortion legislatively, like I say, by statute and by constitutional amendments since 1970, okay? Um, and the incidence of abortion-related bills, you know, sort of skyrocketed after the Roe decision. And, so, you know, Ray Tatalovich calculated that over 90% of the bills that get introduced on this issue um, are, are pro-life bills, okay? Um, and most of them would make an effort to codify Roe or to amend the Constitution uh, to prohibit uh, the practice of abortion. Okay, but these constitutional amendments don't go anywhere, uh, and these statutes, you know, don't 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 go anywhere for the most part. There are some exceptions, uh, the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, for example. Um, but the truth is, Congress deals with abortion every single year as part of the appropriations process. Okay, in, in a way that's downright mundane. So in Congress, you have these authorizing committees that you know create a federal program. Okay. 
Um, maybe that's for international family planning, whatever the case may be. Um, and these authorizers write the program, they suggest funding levels, and that gets enacted into law. But separately, the Appropriations Committee has control over the federal purse. Okay? So the Appropriations Committee takes that funding request, and it, it can't substantively change the bill. That's already been enacted into law. But it can decide how much money gets spent. Okay? So it, it essentially writes the checkbook for the federal government. Um, dealing with, with these kinds of issues, um, and even to, to a certain extent, gay issues get dealt with in the context of appropriations because Congress has to write appropriations bills for the District of Columbia and therefore will have to decide whether or not um, it will pay for domestic partnerships and the like. Um, when you deal with these issues as appropriators, the substantive policy decisions have already been made. I mean, you're not really voting on you know, whether to sanction gay relationships or abortion. You're just sort of fighting about money. Okay? And if you're fighting about, like, if you want to spend $5 billion and I want to spend $3 billion or no billion, well, sort of maybe we can find some, some room in between. Okay? So, so with dollars, there's room for compromise in a way that there isn't you know, when we're talking about authorization bills, if you will. So legislators do, in fact, compromise. And they compromise every year about abortion. Um, now, to say that legislators are um, you know, t t getting pressure from constituents and you know, constituents you know, have opinions on these issues and, and they, they try to uh, lobby their member of Congress and they're morally complex, that doesn't mean that legislators actually have a very difficult time making up their minds. These are very, very easy decisions for legislators. They're not, oh, I'm so, I don't know what to do, I'm very, very conflicted. Uh, legislators have established track records on these issues. Um, am I running out of time? Yes, you're getting there. Okay. Uh, legislators have established track records on these issues, um, and that makes sense, right? I mean, they, uh, if these issues are salient to constituents, then pro-life districts don't elect pro-choice members of Congress. Um, and so it's not as if, you know, maybe when something like stem cell research comes up, they, yeah, they, they don't know what to do, uh, or they, maybe they equivocate a bit. Um, but these are easy decisions, decisions that they've been making for a, a real long time. Um, and I'll say, skipping ahead, um, that it's not just that they talk about principle, but they reference religion very, very specifically as something that influences their politics, that influences their decision making. Um, and and we'll, we'll go so far as to say the late John Anderson, I don't, actually I don't know if John Anderson's deceased, so I'll just say John Anderson, um, made the argument that he, you know, he would, for religious reasons, vote against his district on civil rights um, and even on gay rights uh, on occasion. So uh, sometimes their profiles encourage, but to the extent that legislators in their districts agree, um, you know, they're, they're not exactly profiles in courage. Um, I'll just finish up by saying, sorry, I, I sort of had poor clock management, if you will. Um, so I'll just finish up by saying that these politics are, are marked by incrementalism, and no side really wins everything, and no side really loses everything, um, and that is because the opportunity structure is not in anyone's favor. Okay, um, it's hard to pass constitutional amendments, um, and so if that's your goal, well, we've only passed 27 in our history, and 17 uh, in the last, you know, or the first 10 were passed within two years of the Constitution being ratified. So really, just 17 um, in the last 200 or so years. 
so sort of this, this, the structure of government creates a very, very unfavorable opportunity structure if you are looking for massive sweeping policy change on an issue that absolutely lacks consensus. Okay, so legislators say we're making decisions based on principle, and they dicker over money, um, but the policy process is really, really incremental. Um, and again, I, I'm sorry, I just sort of got talking, and forgive me, that's all. I was very struck by the data you presented about the changing views around gay rights among different denominations. And if I recall, have recalled this correctly, among all of the denominational groups you broke out, and some of them were broken out by both religion as well as race, ethnicity, the only decline, a very sharp decline, happened among black Protestants. Mm -hmm. That's quite extraordinary. Yeah. And I have myself some ideas about what not, why that might be so, but I, I want, you know, partly to do with, I think, some of the failures of some of the gay rights rhetoric, which has used predominantly a like-race analogy, which... Oh, um, sure. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to talk over Right. You. But then also I think the, the successful way in which a conservative white discourse, both secular and religious, has used the language of special rights to disqualify gay rights, and then mm -hmm. has come also to use it to disqualify affirmative action. So there'd be very good reasons mm -hmm. for black Protestants to be actually um, nervous about gay rights. You know, African-American, uh, black Protestants are, you know, the reason we, we divide, we separate them from, from white Protestants um, is because, interestingly, black Protestants combine sort of old-time evangelical religion with old-time liberal New Deal politics, okay, unlike their white counterparts. Um, and so, you know, they're very, very conservative on these issues. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, is that they're evangelicals, okay, so, so they're very traditional. Um, but it's also the case, I think you're onto something, Anne, that there might be some resentment about the language that's been used by the gay rights movement, okay, that, you know, when gay rights became politicized, uh, there was an effort to sort of place this in the tradition of the civil rights movement for African Americans and women that was happening at that time. And, you know, from the perspective of homosexuals for, for gays and lesbians, um, homosexuals don't have to be persecuted if they don't pursue that behavior, which may or may not be chosen from the perspective of many. Whereas African Americans cannot escape persecution. That is who they are. Everybody knows they're, they're black, you know. Um, and so there, there is some tension between these two movements for sure. More of a curiosity. When you say that uh, the, we don't know what goes on in Congress, you mean lay people, or is it difficult to get the voting record? Or is it difficult to understand why people voted for what? Oh, so are you talking about how, so the difficulties with measuring religion? Yeah. Um, because it's... I mean, cultural stuff. Right? Yeah. Well, look, legislators have an, have an incentive to lie about this issue because that's not to say they aren't religious. But even if a legislator isn't religious, it's not necessarily good for their constituents to know that. So if you just say, oh, uh, Congressman, um, how important is it to you that you're Catholic? Oh, well, it's very, very, you know, I, I just uh, go to church every Sunday, believe you me. Um, even if you promise them that you're not going to reveal their name, you know, they don't trust academics, and you're probably tape recording it, and they don't want their constituents to say, you know, to hear them say, well, I don't really care about religion. Because religion is definitely important to their constituents. Um, and so the, their incentive to lie is, is electoral, if you will. Is there any correlation between, or I assume it is, but maybe not, 
the religion of the constituency, if there is a majority in that respect, and the religion of the person who is elected. In other words, Protestant people tend to elect a Protestant guy who might or, or gal who might or might not care about his religion, but is or she is actually Protestant. Um, I, I don't know that there are studies. You know, I don't know that we've measured this, um, but my sense is that the strongly Catholic districts elect Catholics, um, urban districts elect African Americans, well, or or Jews, depending upon where we're talking about. So yeah, but that's just a an educated guess. You talk about specific uh, moral issues that are have been widespread for some time in the culture. Do you see uh, growing complexity of the moral issues? In other words a division of moral issues into uh, larger or smaller and smaller constituencies. So therefore, that might bring some realignment even on moral issues. Um, you know, maybe. I, I, I think a, a, an issue that has given even pro-life, you know, strongly pro-life members of Congress some pause is, for example, stem cell research. Uh, and, and so while they, you know, have a strong, and I, I would point to Senator McCain as an example of this, as someone who has a strong um, pro-life voting record, and oh, and all this, this issue, it's a little bit different for them. And so you, it's not just life and not life. Even within, uh, you know, under the rubric of being pro-life, uh, there, there is some nuance there. And look, you could also look at pro-choice members of Congress and see how difficult the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act was for them. I mean, that bill was... Um, you know, didn't pass by a small margin. That got a lot of votes from, from Democrats. And, and so here again, you know, you're someone who's strongly pro-choice, um, but even that issue is a little bit different. I don't know how realignment would happen um, on that basis, but yes, there are internal complexities. So, you know, sort of not red and, and blue, it's purple, if you will, if I may. Um. Yes, uh, I realize this isn't what you specifically studied, but I'll bet your gut opinion is quite valuable on two related questions um, briefly stated is um, going back before your time of analysis was the onset of the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, personally, I was quite uh, frightened that some kind of you know, generalized scapegoating of minorities would take place. And I was very grateful that didn't really happen. And most of the anti-gay rhetoric is based on kind of very simplistic uh, fundamentalism and not really related to any putative public health um, ramifications. Now, there's a new uh, public health crisis with the epicenter in the San Francisco Castro. So the question comes, are we going to be this lucky again? And this, the second question is, and maybe you're more comfortable just answering one, is um, increased, there's a, a, a belief that there's an increased turnout of conservative voters when gay marriage is an issue, et cetera. And I'd be very interested if you feel that the Democratic strategists uh, perhaps are overly worried about that, or do you feel that, that there really is a substantial increase in voter turnout of, of, of conservatives, especially in districts that are closely contested? Um, on the latter question, there's been some research on that uh, by David Campbell and Quinn Monson. Uh, Campbell's at Notre Dame, and, and Quinn is at BYU. 
uh, and they studied voter turnout uh, in a recent conference paper in Ohio as, as a sort of a result of, of having gay marriage on the ballot. And their finding, um, you know, hesitate to speak for them, is that it really was effective in mobilizing religious conservatives. Uh, on the question of AIDS, you know, in the 1980s, this was, I don't, it, it was obviously a profound human tragedy. Um, it was also really reinvigorating for, I think, the gay rights movement because they realized how politically weak they were, okay? Um, and for its part, Congress didn't really know how to cope with this. It sort of didn't have the specialization. And when it became clear that this, for a long time they could ignore it because there was the sense that this was uh, a disease that, you know, HIV drug users, um, that IV drug users got, and it was a disease that, that gay men got, and, you know, those aren't really important constituency groups for them, and so they could ignore it. When it became clear that this was an issue affecting the straight community, um, they, they acted to appropriate money for AIDS research. You know, I have been in an appropriations committee meeting um, without the public there and, you know, heard a member of Congress say when, when voting on a, a, a public health, a public aid bill for Africa, you, you know, you've got to understand that this isn't just getting gay men, okay? Straight people are dying in Africa of AIDS. We have to do something about this. So to the extent that, that Congress appropriated money for that, and even, you know, to the extent that there was a victory for gay rights with the hate crime statistics bill, it was not a standalone gay rights bill, okay? It came in the context of helping other people and, and gays and lesbians sort of incidentally. So uh, it's a profound human tragedy. Um, it has served to mobilize the gay community, and Congress has responded to the extent that they can make it about someone other than gays and lesbians. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.